0: Hey, and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mahan. And today, I'm really excited to be bringing you part two of my Buyer Beware episodes. And today, I'm going to cover off four other speculative types of property investment. I'm going to go through the benefits, the upsides, but more importantly, the downsides that no one usually tells you about. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. So, let's jump into my next four speculative types of investment. We'll go through the benefits and the downsides of each, and give you some of my personal experiences I've had with them over the years. So, the first of which that I wanted to give you the inside view on was share housing. Now, I came across this type of investment property when I was asked to appraise one. And it was about ten years or so ago, and the owner was managing the property himself, and he had eight separate occupants, so all in. Um, six different bedrooms, eight occupants, and he was making about $50,000 a year positive cash flow. So very impressive on the face of it. And I certainly thought long and hard about buying the property from him at the time. And it appeared to be an absolute cash cow that could be milked for many years to come. And I thought, wow, if I could just get two or three of these, uh, I'd be set, wouldn't I? So I didn't end up selling the property for him, but I found out later that it exceeded the maximum number of legal tenancies for how it was set up, and it was missing many of the other things under the building code, and some of them, including fire protection and safety, would have had dire consequences if anything went wrong, and it would have cost a considerable amount to retrofit the house to suit those things. And when you actually decreased the number of occupants to the legal requirements, the cash flow would have been considerably less. Now, I'm still only a beginner when it comes to share housing. And I know that it can be done exceptionally well, but it's certainly not a passive type of investment. And it requires a lot of management and effort needed. And where I've seen it work. Better is when um, the owner may actually live on site and be able to control things better. And then you know, you've got big trade-offs with that in itself. So I don't know anything about setting up the compliance to a share house, and, but I know enough to know that it's, uh, you need to tread lightly. So there can be some big upsides in the cash flow, but what are the downsides? Well, I've mentioned legal compliance. It's not just with the building but also very difficult with the tenancies as they don't typically fall under the Residential Tenancies Act. I think it's uh, under the short-stay accommodation side of things and it requires competent and intensive management to regularly be replacing the occupants and ensuring that everyone gets along and that the property is maintained because it can be a much higher wear and tear. And like running any sort of active business, it's uh, not going to be a passive investment. It's going to occupy a lot of headspace around and almost be a second job for you. So it's very hard to get right as well because you've got a big capital outlay to either build or set up the house and purchase all the furniture. And the location has to be in demand and the accommodation desirable enough to that market or it can all be for nothing. So imagine if you either built or retrofitted a house. You then found out after buying all the furniture and all the rest of it, the demand wasn't there or that you couldn't get the level of occupancy that you need. Over time, it can be a very hard way to find out. Now, if building such a house, the build cost will be extremely high and the banks will also not likely lend higher than a 70% loan to value ratio. And without that strong homeowner appeal to the property... You're not going to have the emotional demand when it comes time to sell, especially if investors are thin in the market. So your your resale market's really only going to be to investors and that makes it very precarious on choosing your timing if you do want to exit the property. So all in all, don't go into this uh, expecting it to be easy. You'd have to find an absolute expert in the space. Expect to pump a lot of money into your deposit and have a second job or you'd need very competent management to ensure that it's all done right from set up through to to ongoing. So it's certainly not a strategy that I'd suggest for the vast majority of investors. Now number two, land banking schemes. So many years ago I was doing a property education seminar in Melbourne. God, oh, this is probably 15 years ago. And in part of it they taught us about the power of options. So if anyone knows what an option is, it's a way of controlling a property without having to purchase it and you have an agreed price that you can proceed with and you can then benefit from the upside by either on selling that option to someone else that goes ahead with the purchase or going ahead with the purchase, uh, settling the property and only having to pay the option amount and then you could either choose to on sell the property or build on it for instance. So options like any tool can be used for good in your investing or they can cause you harm. And the way that it typically works is you you might be offered a small block of land or an option to buy a block of land. And the option agreement is generally triggered when the land has been approved for development by the relevant planning authority, usually the, the local council. So you may be told that investing in a land banking scheme will make you money and that it's a cheap way of getting into the property market. And you may be offered land at a cheap price and told that once it's rezoned or approved for residential development, its value will increase dramatically, allowing you to sell it for a profit. Thankfully, at the time, I had no interest in owning land in the middle of nowhere. And regardless of the profit that I may make, I actually saw many other investors that were like lambs to the slaughter that day and they all signed up and put their option fees down and that option fee is non-refundable. So whether or not the development actually goes ahead, you've got an option on some land that may or may not come to pass. And many years later, I heard that nothing had ever come about for the land And and that was when I saw an investor telling their story of woes on a property forum about how they'd put this money in and never gotten anything and the developer ended up going bankrupt and not proceeding with the development. So what are the risks and downsides besides getting nothing via money? Well, developers often sell blocks of land from concept plans. So, these have not yet been approved for the subdivision. And that's where the trouble can come in because even though they're optimistic about getting these things approved, there's a hell of a lot of time, money, and effort to go from a concept plan through to an end titled block. So, timeframes can blow out, and there's no guarantee that this land will be rezoned. For example, I think the uh, blocks that we were looking at then were rural farming and they were counting on them going to residential land. So there's no guarantees that that'll happen and or getting the council approval for development in the future. There's no guarantees that the approval will all go through. So this makes land banking a very risky investment option indeed. Now, there may be restrictions also on how the land can be used or developed once you end up getting that block. And you also don't get it, you've made an outlay for the option fee, and you won't be receiving any cash flow or return on that option fee in the meantime. So there's no there's no cash flow associated with this type of investment in embedded commerce. So in summary, it's a highly speculative type of property investment and should not even be considered unless you're prepared to lose all of your option fee. And uh, even then, I think there's far safer and more dependable ways to get growth and stick with those. Number three, off the plan apartments. Now, in part one, I covered house and land packages, and you might have heard me talk about some of my experiences with apartments in the past in some of our episodes. But look, this is where marketers roll out their glossy brochures and their sunset champagne drinks to sell you on the emotions. Of owning a brand new apartment, including the benefits of lower stamp duty, high depreciation, and fantastic location. So, you commit to settling on completion, and construction typically takes two to three years. So, I've covered off my experiences with an off the plan purchase in episode 36. and and that uh, episode was called learning from my biggest mistakes if you want to go and check it out in more detail but here's a summary of the downsides that most of the and, and look most of these also apply whether you're buying off the plan or buying an established high density apartment so location now a location may be great for high density apartments but the attributable land component is so small that effectively to work out the prospects for growth which comes from the land you'd need to divide the land value by however many units there are in that group and you'll typically be at a 70 to 80 percent building component and a 20 to 30 percent land component and land appreciates buildings depreciate so growth potential is going to be minimal that's first and foremost if you're looking for growth stay away from off-the-plan apartments now off the plan apartments and high density apartments so there's been many issues also coming to light with building standards mainly over east but we're regularly seeing issues with the properties that we manage coming up with drainage and larger rectification works being needed on relatively new apartment complexes so i think in due course we're going to be finding out just how well these are all built and that can add huge expenses to your strata fees if they're needing these rectification works, as we're seeing on some already. Now, they can be a real large risk when buying off the plan that your situation or the market conditions will change. So that can result in you either not being able to get finance or having to tip in a larger deposit because that valuation is not going to be at the contract price. And it's very hard to put your life on hold for the two to three years during that settlement period to be ready to settle. That was my biggest problem with it. You can't feel like you can't do anything else in the meantime because you need to have your finance ready to settle. They often have very high strata fees that can really cut into returns and the upkeep of large common areas and facilities. Also in the case of the older complexes, There can be large maintenance or upgrades required to replace lifts and roofs, very expensive things that keep that strata fee really high and cut into your cash flow. Now, the other thing that people don't think about is that it can also be very challenging to rent or sell, especially when these apartments are just completed because there's many others that will come onto the market and they're all very similar and you can only really then come down to competing on price. So if you're going to buy apartments, stick to those that are in smaller groups, preferably of eight or less that have a great unique location and buy on completion, not off the plan and the growth trade-offs will be high usually. But if you care more for lifestyle and you want to live in them, and that might outweigh the negatives for you as well. Number four, country towns and regional centres had to cover this off because I regularly see in the forums and Facebook group, by the way, if you're not a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group, go and join now. Really great to uh, have everyone in there helping each other out uh, with their investing. So get along to that. Back to country towns and regional centres. So the appeal of the country towns can be strong when you're still a long way off affording to buy in a capital city or you don't have much borrowing capacity left or you're chasing rental income without an overall strategy to how you're first going to grow your asset base. So, a lot of people think and are tempted by that shortcut to just go and start buying income producing properties, but they don't look at their end goal of think what's level of income they're going to try to replace and how they would actually go about that and how many properties they would need if they started out on the income side and got very little growth to first grow the asset base, which is my preferred approach, and then convert the asset base across the income when you have a sizable enough asset behind you. So be clear on your strategy and where the property type fits in. And that would have you not looking at many of these property types we've spoken about so far. If your focus was growth, you wouldn't want to buy in a country town or regional center. Now, the rental returns and the lower price points on offer can be Attractive on face value. And sure, you're still going to get some growth, right? Hopefully. Um, but often these locations are included in those hotspot buyer locations that are listed. And you might see some growth when all the other investors are following the guru's recommendations. But if there are too many investors rushing in, it can overinflate a location. And if you're late to that party, the fall in prices can be hard, very hard when it's no longer the flavor of the month. So without that solid foundation for growth over the long term, many investors get burnt because they come in late, they follow the hotspot, bottom drops out of the market, they're left with negative equity and minimal prospects for growth then ongoingly. So the typical growth pattern in these areas can come very sporadically by, you know, small, by changes to that industry or by becoming a hotspot location, as I just mentioned. And if one of the main industries supporting that town dries up, you can see property prices drop very sharply. So the other downsides include that there's little to no growth over long periods of time. Uh, So without growth in house prices, you can also have limited growth in rents over time because rental prices and house prices relate to each other. Now, you've got to They work off of each other and if house prices don't grow much, rents typically do not grow much either. So what might start out as a $5,000 positive cash flow is likely to stay that way for a very long time until you also see increases in the prices, the house prices in the area too. And often the rent prices will increase first and then the house prices will follow, but they can both be very flat for a long time. So often there's lower sales volumes are typical as well. So especially in down periods. So if you want to get out in a downward period and there's so little properties that are actually getting sold, uh, it's going to be a case of how low you can go and who's who's got the lowest price property and very difficult to sell and can be also very difficult to rent when you don't have the normal levels of activity that you see in the capital cities. And look, as I mentioned, it's heavily reliant on typically one to two industries and can be vulnerable to changes in them. And you will also find that the banks typically offer a lower loan to value ratio as they do with many of the other speculative types of investments. So you will have to put more cash into them. Now, in summary, growth is your goal. Country areas are not for you, especially given the risk of losing your investment and trying to time things perfectly to get that sporadic growth that then may not come for a long time. If you are focusing on income, look at the cash flow on your purchase and potentially that may not increase for many years to come. So you have to be happy with it from day one and not count on it increasing further for a potentially a long while. So, look, in summary, thanks for tuning in to our Buyer Beware series. I think we've covered off nine different speculative investment types that I think you should stay away from. And, look, some of these are exciting forms of investment that promise those stronger cash flows or other tax benefits, which perhaps could be worth considering if that's your primary goal. But there are many trade-offs, and if the banks consider them risky and won't lend as much, it's a big warning sign that you should too. So. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next one.